Welcome to episode 76 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Jonathan Glennie. Jonathan is the director of the Ipsos Sustainable Development Centre. He is also a prominent writer and researcher on international development and cooperation and has been a visiting fellow at the International Development Institute at King's College London, as well as worked at the Overseas Development Institute, Save the Children UK and Christian Aid. I interviewed Jonathan in February, pre-COVID-19, at the Australasian Aid Conference hosted by the Development Policy Centre in partnership with the Asia Foundation. Jonathan gave a keynote address on the future of aid in the 21st century. Jonathan spoke at the conference about global public investment in aid and the future of concessional international public finance as we move from what he refers to as the old-fashioned aid mentality. In this interview, we take a deep dive into some of those points. We discuss the measurement of inequality versus poverty. We also discuss why development is a concern for all countries at all times and why aid is permanent, not temporary, meaning we shouldn't be so concerned with exit strategies. We also discuss why all countries can contribute to aid and be both donors and recipients. Lastly, we discuss why we need more accountability in the governance of aid and why public and private money are not the same, though both could be classed as investments. Jonathan is provocative and contentious in his arguments, and this conversation will certainly provoke some deeper reflections on how we do aid. A lot of the issues he raises have only become more, not less relevant with the COVID-19 pandemic. The Australasian Aid Conference feels like a lifetime ago now, but many of the insightful conversations that were had have been preserved through the Dev Policy blog and Goodwill Hunters. We've included a link in the show notes to a wrap-up of the conference, as well as links to other episodes with speakers from the conference. You can also watch Jonathan Glennie's lecture or listen to it on the Dev Policy Talks podcast. Again, there are links in the show notes. We've got one last episode from the conference to air with Graham and Glennis Romains, which is a fascinating and inspirational story, so stay tuned for that. But next week, we're looking at COVID-19 in Papua New Guinea with two local experts. As we go to air today, Oxfam Australia has just announced that they'll be cutting 50% of their Australian workforce in the coming months, following a difficult few years and most recently the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. We had Oxfam CEO Lynn Morgan on the show a couple of weeks ago, where she discussed Oxfam's new strategy and what's ahead. If you haven't listened to it yet, I highly suggest you do. That's all from me. Enjoy episode 76 with Jonathan Glennie. Jonathan, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. You've said the language and theory of aid is outdated. Let's start there. Can you tell us why? Well, I mean, the first thing is to get is to you know get it in the right way around. I, I think the communication of aid and development clearly um, has to change. But the first thing that I stress, um, having worked on this for a few years now, is that it's actually our own understanding, our own analysis as experts, or at least as practitioners in the field, our own theory of aid that we have to get right first before we move on to the kind of narrative and and the, the comm side. Because so often we do it the other way around. So often we're most concerned with how we're going to communicate this stuff or how we're going to uh, position it politically. And we don't have time almost. We don't give ourselves time to try and understand what we really think. 
about aid, concessional finance, development. So the first thing I, I, I think is to just check whether we have a solid basis of understanding individually and collectively of what we're doing with this quite valuable uh, amount of money, particularly thinking about the financial side in the 21st century in a very, very different context to when it was set up maybe you know, 70, 80 years ago. So are you essentially saying that we need to think more about our aid paradigms? Exactly. I mean, to be provocative, I would say that while the Australian government is engaged in a new strategy, my government, the UK, is engaged just starting on a new strategy, it's fairly likely that that strategy will be a bit shallow and won't go into the detail or really kind of analytical, theoretical thinking about what the purpose is of concessional international public finance, which we call aid, um, uh, to support development. There are theories that exist about this, the big push theory. You have people writing in the 60s and 70s and 80s about what the point of aid is. I don't think that's really been updated. Uh, whether it was any good in the first place, either way, I don't think it's really been updated for our modern era. And um, I think w when I talk to um, aid practitioners, uh, you know, and leading thinkers, I think we've, got, we've all got nowadays, and we've been spending the last five, ten years talking about the new challenges, the new context. We're kind of well-versed in understanding the world we're facing. But what we haven't got clear at all is the, is the role of this particular kind of money to respond. And that's really what I'm working on at the moment. You've put forward five aid paradigm shifts, so let's talk about those. The first is that we need to shift our focus from one of reducing poverty to one of reducing inequality. Why is that so important? So, uh, just to be kind of, you know, pedantic, I, I don't think, although I may have written it like that, I don't think we shouldn't focus on poverty. I'm talking about expanding the remit rather than kind of moving away from poverty. I think for really, in many instances, it will always be the number one priority. Absolute poverty is the kind of biggest shame on our world. But the point is that our ambition has to expand beyond that. The MDGs and the MDG era had a lot of um, positives going for them. Uh, it was a priority list that really you know, focused the minds of the international community on some really important issues, and I think on health especially. I really think you can see the impact of that. But one of the downsides was the entrenchment of the idea that once this very limited, quite stingy understanding of, of um, uh, absolute poverty was overcome, then the role of the international community could somehow be dialed down. You know, there's no need for us to be there anymore. Why? Because... Absolute poverty is, is, is at very low numbers. And, you know, when you look at countries' poverty, because income per capita has, has risen above a particular um, arbitrary threshold. I think the SDG uh, era has clearly shifted our ambitions. It's a wildly more ambitious agenda than the MDG agenda. Even in the specific themes like health, rather than just focus on quite basic health outcomes, uh, mothers not dying, children not dying, hugely important, but very, very low base. Um, actually, we're now talking about also, uh, universal health coverage. The same is true in education, which focused in the MDGs on primary education, is now focusing on secondary, tertiary, lifelong learning. It's true, tr true throughout those themes. And on top of that, we've added issues of uh, sustainability, environmental sustainability, climate change, the specific goal on inequality. But beyond that specific goal and the genie that you mentioned, which is about income inequality, I think there's a much broader paradigm which says this is no longer about 
the international community ensuring that some people in some countries are above an arbitrary, very, very low line in the sand on poverty. It's about convergence. That's what I mean by inequality. It's about reducing the huge gap between the wealthy countries and the poorer countries, the wealthy people and the poorer people. And that is a permanent um, that is inevitably going to be a, a long-term and permanent goal. We, we, we're not going to solve that in the same way as that hopefully we can respond um, sooner rather than later to absolute poverty. So is your focus more on inequality within countries or inequality between countries? I think it's both. Uh, I think it has to be both. Um, there are different um, analyses of of what's going up and what's going down. My own view is that is that you know, we, we, we could we could we could be you know here for a long time looking at all the data about where inequality is increasing within and between countries. The reality is inequality is huge, and I think that's all we really need to know to know that we need to be working very hard to resolve it. If it and the analogy I always use is 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 with the European Union member countries, where huge amounts of money are transferred to the poorer countries of the EU every year, and it's not to, just to resolve. Poverty. In fact, there is very little extreme poverty in the EU. It's because uh, within the European Union, countries have decided that they want to help other countries come up to a certain standard of living that they consider to be acceptable. That's the new norm that we should be setting throughout the world. So when you hear uh, development ministers saying, you know, Vietnam is now emerging from poverty and we're going to dial down our aid program, when you hear that about so many other countries, you know, I think we should ask, well, why is that so for Vietnam but not for Poland? Why is it so for South Africa but not for Romania? You know, all countries should be, should have the aim to be um, uh, rising in their living standards to the to the highest uh, uh, that we would expect uh, around the world. And it doesn't matter if they're European or not. The complexity here for me is that if we measure our success in the aid and development sector by reduced poverty, that's likely to garner much better results than if we measure our success by reduced inequality. How do you reconcile that? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, f- for me, it's just a shift in 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 a way of thinking. I, I, I think we have made a lot of progress in the last 100 years, and especially in the last 20, 30 years on a whole range of indicators. And I think, you know, the poverty line and income poverty is quite controversial. It's quite hard to work out. But if you just look at, you know, the number of people that uh, are dying uh, in childbirth, the number of infants dying before the age of five, across the world, these things have improved hugely. Life expectancy, um, so there's a lot to con- congratulate ourselves for. Well, the point I'm making is not that we haven't done well. The point is um, we need to expand our, our horizons and, tr- and, and, and not just uh, start to uh, roll back um, international cooperation on the basis of, uh, you know, like I say, a fairly arbitrary and fairly stingy poverty line. And by the way, we haven't yet talked about you know, the, the challenges of climate change. So on the one hand, there's this huge opportunity to reduce inequality. On the other hand, there's this huge threat to our well-being um, regionally, nationally and globally as a planet. And that also is going to require a huge amount of uh, investment. And that's not really uh, understood by the aid agencies. And so w- 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 this is a paradigm shift, but it's one that's absolutely already been signed up to in the SDGs. And yet the aid sector hasn't signed up to it. So the point I made in the talk I gave here is that actually, while the SDGs were being discussed, a large part of the traditional aid sector, the major donors, were working against them. And it's understandable why, because they wanted a, a, short, a small number of you know, priorities to work on. 
But actually what they were working uh, for was this kind of an MDG plus, a poverty plus focus, which totally didn't understand what the rest of the world was looking for, which was a much, much bolder statement that it's time to uh, bring uh, living standards up across the world. It is the case that development assistance to a country tends to be scaled back once they reach a particular level of economic growth. And we definitely have seen that in Australia with the reduction in our aid investments in particular Asian economies. What do you say to a government when they are reducing their aid program to a country on the basis that that country is experiencing higher economic growth? Well, I mean, I think the first thing to say is it's great that that government development agencies are looking beyond just aid. And that is a, that's progress over the last 10, 15 years, looking at uh, global policy shifts, whether it be on taxation, whether it be on investment, whether it be on climate change, um, whether it be on uh, the arms trade. There are, there are things that are actually a lot more important than sending money to countries. Um, and often sending money to countries is actually the easiest way to get out of um, kind of the major major policy shifts that are required. And I think, you know, it's fa- fairly, I don't know Australia too well, but it's fairly clear that they don't want to make, the government doesn't want to make particular progress on climate change. And, and in that context, it, it feels like throwing money at countries is, is kind of trying to get good headlines without actually dealing with the really major issues that are going to affect countries. So just to get that out of the way, the fact that I happen to be working on aid at the moment doesn't mean that I think it's the most important thing in the world. How, how, how would one make the case that countries that are doing fairly well economically compared to 10, 15, 20 years ago uh, still require help? Well, I think that is why it's a paradigm shift. If we consider that quotes, quoting back to you, and I know you're just quoting other people, Vietnam is emerging from poverty, that makes sense only because of our definition of the word poverty. Yeah? If we said, actually, they're still miles away. Most people in Vietnam are miles away from what we'd expect for our own families. It's fairly obvious, if you think in global terms rather than national terms, that there's still a huge way to go for, uh, for the international community to, to support Vietnam. Um, and that is through a number of ways, but absolutely through continued redistribution from the very wealthy countries to especially the very poor countries, but also just simply poorer countries. So looking at poverty in, terms, in relative terms rather than absolute terms. Um, and yeah, it is a huge paradigm shift. We just don't think in those terms. The aid sector is not set up like that. The aid sector is, is set up to think of once you've graduated above this particular line, that's it. Or, you know, it's slightly, slightly gradual. It's a few years, but basically that's it. And I'm saying, no, we have to think about it in a much more permanent sense. This, this needs to be in exactly the same way we do. And the way that I would, what I would try and persuade, uh, you know, the public of it is that that's how we think at the national level. We don't think that taxation is a short-term um, uh, intervention and that you know welfare is a short-term intervention and the redistribution within our own national state is a short-term intervention we know that this is here for good because there's always new challenges there's always um, surprises and shocks and there's always inequality uh, you look at the you look at di- the digital and technological revolution in many ways that's going to exacerbate inequality unless we do something about it so the idea that aid is temporary is one of the most this is one of the deepest kind of bases of our understanding of aid and i'm suggesting that it's wrong it actually has to be there for good because our globe will never emerge from a state of unsustainability and inequality and we need to constantly respond to that this is certainly a very provocative paradigm shift because 
as a sector, we are really concerned with our exit strategies. We do spend a lot of time thinking about how we'll leave and when we'll leave. But based on what you're saying, maybe we never leave. Maybe this is a permanent arrangement. We'll, we'll never leave, but then well, I'm also suggesting a number of other shifts that we'll come on to. But make it—it's it's not just like you know we're in Australia, so let's talk about Australia. It's not just Australia will always be giving to other countries. That's not how I want to see it. I want to see it actually as everyone, every country contributes to national, regional, and global progress, and every country receives according to need. So it, it, it sounds, um, and but yes, there will be net net contributors and net recipients. And the richer countries will always be net contributors in exactly the same way as richer citizens are always net contributors to the national budget and poorer citizens are generally net recipients. However, the poorer citizens also give money, um, but they're net recipients. So it, there's a number of shifts that are going to be required. It's not just a case of rich countries continue to give to poor countries for, for, for forever. And, and one of the things about the SDGs is that it's expanded focus on global public goods and regional public goods. So it's not even just about supporting national progress. Mm. It's about supporting regional and global uh, goods. So you've started to explain your second um, paradigm shift there, which is that aid has historically been north-south, but now it needs to be universal, which is where you say, yes, there'll be net donors and net recipients, but we should all be looking at how everyone can give. Again, the European Union is a good analogy, and so is our is our national treasury. At the, in the European Union, all member states contribute to the EU budget. The poorer ones give less, the richer ones give more. And all of them receive, even the richer countries receive money back from the budget um, to support specific issues in their own countries. Um, and that's how I see something like that. It's, very, it's, an, it's an analogy. You know, the governance structure would be incredibly different. Accountability is very different. Um, but something like that at the global level, at least in terms of our concept. And people think this is very radical. And actually, it's already happening. I haven't got the numbers, but it's quite possible that the majority of countries are already contributing to um, uh, development goals, uh, whether um, in other countries bilaterally or um, regionally or globally. A great example is the Global Fund uh, on HIV, AIDS, TB and malaria. And even some of the poorest countries in the world are contributing to that. And I think the radical bit of this suggestion is people know that China's contributing. People know that India's contributing. But what about Sierra Leone? What about Rwanda? What about the poorest countries in the world? And actually, A, they already are, even if it's a small amount of money. And B, it makes sense because it's long term, it's simply undignified to be a recipient. Okay, countries want to emerge from that um, relationship. Once we accept that all countries are actually contributors... All countries get to sit at the table. All countries decide how money is spent in their region, or in or in or in the world. And clearly, you can't you can't uh, eliminate power relationships. The richer countries will always have uh, more powerful countries will always have more say. Yeah, that's just a fact of life. There's no law or regulation or governance that can get around power, but you can mitigate it somewhat. And you can say, actually, you're not you know poorer countries. You're not recipients anymore. You are. Uh, uh, you all have a seat at the table. That's the kind of change that I'm uh, proposing. And, and as I say, you know, it's not even that radical because it's already happening, especially in the regions. You know, the regional banks, uh, most countries contribute to them. Is a precursor to recipient countries becoming donors that first they start contributing more to their own domestic development programs? 
Yeah, it's a really good point as well. I mean, actually, if you counted all the money that supposedly recipient countries are contributing to, for instance, refugee programs, which counts as ODA in OECD countries, you might well find that I really, you know, haven't had time to do all the numbers, you might well find they're already contributing 0.7% of their GDP in what, what, what the wealthy OECD countries would call aid, because because uh, that, that kind of thing counts. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, but the, the point is, well, it looks like a radical proposal, but actually it's already happening. And what, what we haven't done as an aid sector is come up with a language and a theory and analysis that actually responds to the reality on the ground. We know this is happening because we study it and we see it all around us. And yet, then we still go back to our meetings and talk about donors and recipients. And not only is the language annoying, and we'll come on to the language later, but it, it, it's just simply factually incorrect. Mm-hmm. You could talk about net contributors and net recipients. That makes sense. Some countries give a lot more. Some countries give less and receive more. But the simple some countries are donors and some countries are recipients is factually incorrect and nonsense. So how come we as experts, as academics, are still caught in that trap? Yeah. And Australia, if anyone should know that after the summer that we've just had. Right. You just received money from some of the poorest countries in the region. Mm. And that's a great thing. And that's the beginning of uh, of the kind of thing I'm talking about. You know, many of these countries, uh, especially the bigger ones, China, has been giving money for uh, for decades. They're not emerging donors by any means. Um, so, again, there's some, some, some of the ideas I'm putting forward in this kind of work would be considered provocative and new. Other ones are just kind of putting some names and theory onto what's already happening. Now, you also make the point that governance of aid needs to go from being closed to being accountable. What are you suggesting when you say that it's closed at present? You know, it's almost inevitable uh, and this is just kind of geopolitics and politics, but countries like to maintain as much control over what they're doing as possible. We don't massively appreciate other countries getting involved and um, there seems to be a rowing back from multilateralism. And if you just look at the way that the OECD um, tries to manage ODA, for me, it seems to be an attempt to reduce the influence of the South and try to maintain a kind of advantage um, in, in a way they've always kind of for decades managed the ODA uh, definition and budget and that doesn't seem to be going away and it's just astonishing really to think that we're in 2020 and there's still a group of countries trying to manage what does and doesn't count as ODA when actually that's very obviously an international question that should be solved um, by all sorts of countries, in fact by every country. Um, so it's it's just about opening out the governance uh, uh, structure of of uh, money management, uh, especially the accountability, and to include, by the way, not just um, the rising, uh, the increasingly powerful countries of the South, but also uh, civil society. Mm-hmm. Because it's very common, including, and maybe especially in South-South cooperation, for civil society to be excluded and for things not to be uh, managed in a particularly democratic way, very state-state, very... Uh, executive level. Um, that's one of the reasons why I think changing governance is so important because somehow um, the weaker countries in the world need to get a handle on these radical changes that have happened in money flows, uh, which at the moment are really, really hard to manage. Uh, they'll always be hard to manage, but somehow you can set up a governance structure that oversees it a little bit better than it does at the moment. 
A point I find interesting is absorptive capacity. When we look at ODA data for Asia and parts of the Pacific, we see that in some cases, countries do receive more than 20% of their GDP in ODA, which is what the World Bank says is the absorptive capacity, that anything beyond 20% is exceeding that absorptive capacity. Does improved governance help us to recognise when a country might be receiving too much aid? Yeah, ODA and other other public flows, because for instance, you know, Chinese investment, public investment does not always count as as kind of ODA-like money. Well, I don't think the OECD captures that at all. Well, it has, it has numbers on China, but it, it but it doesn't. It's not part of the OECD kind of group, obviously. And, and and that's that's an important point. I mean, you know, what ought to be the case is that recipient countries should have clear numbers on the money they're receiving, whether that be private or in this case public. And a lot of countries don't. I would say most countries don't. Um, there is especially the non-OECD countries, and especially China, are pretty untransparent in the way that they um, uh, share information. So one of the great things the OECD does is it's hard hard to do the data and it does it as best it can. It does it pretty well. And when I say that governance has to shift away from the OECD, I don't say at all that the OECD shouldn't continue to do its brilliant analytical work. There's a difference between doing analysis and actually governing the whole thing. but yeah, I, I mean, it's somewhat even more controversial book that I wrote a few years ago. I did exactly suggest that some countries, especially in Africa, need to set out a, ch- a, a path to reduce aid dependency uh, because high levels of aid over long periods of time, especially when it's not all captured, um, can actually harm the development process. They can harm the accountability and capability of governments. And one of the most important things in development is the development of institutions responsible and responsive to their citizens. Uh, and when the vast majority of a government's budget or a large minority comes f- externally for a long period of time, that really damages um, uh, uh, responsiveness and accountability to citizens. So I, I, I actually, I, I mean, a lot of people will disagree with me on this, but I actually think that um, c- countries should absolutely reduce their aid dependency as soon as possible. But the corollary of that is not that countries should receive zero aid. And that is what the kind of current narrative takes us down. It's, it, it, it's reduced from 20% or whatever the number you just said to zero. And I'm saying reduce from 20% to 1% or 2%. Because that 1% or 2%, and we missed out a paradigm shift, actually. The second one's about the function of this money. And it's not just about filling gaps. It's about overcoming traps. It's a special kind of money. And one of the things that's glossed over in a lot of development, development finance discussions is that not all dollars are equal. And private money, this is obvious, but somehow it's forgotten in some discussions. Private money does very different things and is motivated in very different ways and is accountable to very different people to public money. And international money is very different to domestic money. And even though, you know, aid is maybe 150 billion from the DAC and maybe 50 billion more from South-South Cooperation, who knows? You know, it's, it's around about there. It's tiny globally uh, compared to many other sources of development finance. But the fact that it's small doesn't make it unimportant. Uh, it actually almost makes it even more special, even more worth nurturing, and in my view, increasing, because it's able to do really specific things that as we face new challenges in this world, we're going to really need that kind of money to to do. And, and the threat that I think exists 
uh, if we follow the logic of the current aid narrative, is that gradually we see a world in the next 10, 20 years where this kind of money, concessional international public finance, basically doesn't exist anymore because all countries have graduated. They don't need it anymore. And my view is that that would be a, 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 a bad place to be. We need large amounts of international public finance at the international uh, level to respond to global opportunities and threats, not because it's perfect. It's far from perfect, and I and many others have written about this, but because it has some great qualities that need to be preserved. You made the point there that private money and public money are very different, and you also said earlier that language is a really important part of this discussion. So that brings us to the final paradigm shift, which is that our language needs to switch from one of charity to one of investment. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, actually, this is quite controversial. Um, because, and, and I'm I'm looking at this again, because a lot of people have questioned the use, the use of the word investment. I quite like it. And it certainly works in a lot of contexts, especially if you're talking to finance ministers. But um, other other um, colleagues, especially from civil society, have emphasized that, you know, this shouldn't be about investment. In other words, seeking a return, even if not a financial return, it should be about human rights and solidarity. And uh, therefore, I'm looking at the moment at the language of contributions. Um, so I'm not wedded to, I'm not wedded to any to any particular um, language. But we do need to move on from the old-fashioned stuff. So the idea that it's aid, the idea that it's charity, just giving. I mean, no one who studies who studies this sector has any illusions about the fact that a lot of it is in the, is in the national interest of a country. Uh, there's, a, there's a large return in terms of political, sometimes economic benefit to the contributor country. Uh, and also, I think something that's underestimated is the impact of language on recipients. So to be conceived of as a recipient of charity, either as a person as an individual or as a community or as a country can actually have long-term damage on your on your confidence on your uh, psychology and that's something that is understudied in this sector we all again it's another it's another fascinating thing in our sector we all know this and we, we I, I, I I never ever find anyone who's who suggests to me no actually we should keep these words no one thinks that and yet we still continue to use them. The issue of developing and developed. You know, I've got no problem with the idea that countries are developing, but all countries are developing. There's not a set of countries that is developed. In other words, has finished the development process. It's an absurd concept. You only have to think about it for, for very little. And, and like I say, everyone I talk to agrees with that. And yet we still go back and we write our papers and we go to our conferences and we separate the world into developing and developed. It's quite absurd. And, I, and so, yeah, one aspect of this work is just to say, look, we, we have to start using new language that's appropriate, not only appropriate to the reality of what we're facing, but actually um, appropriate to the dignity of all peoples and all countries. I heard recently people living in some of the least developed countries be described as the world's most vulnerable people. And I heard a separate narrative described them as the world's most promising people and both really made me cringe. It's really hard to find language that is both empowering without sugarcoating the realities of poverty. Yeah, it is hard. It is hard. And generally speaking, what we do in the development sector is come up with new words for a couple of years and then they, they're outdated and then we come out with other words. You know, it's, you know try, trying, to, trying to get this correct is hard. Um, but I think there are some things that pretty much everyone agrees on. 
Um, and I think it's about time we just moved on the narrative because I, I think it's, it, it's fundamentally dishonest. We're selling we're selling something a little bit dishonestly to our publics because we know that the language of charity appeals to the public. Um, people like to think that they're doing a good thing, and and that's fine. Uh, and I don't think we should lose that entirely. You know, I think there, you know I want this to be a generous endeavour, and I think people should be proud of it. But we also need to be somewhat honest with our with our uh, with the general public about. Uh, about this, and also, you know, we don't talk about, uh, like I say, redistribution at the national level as charity, and we don't talk about poorer parts of the country as developing. We just wouldn't, because we just know that that just sounds wrong, and it, and it, and it implies the wrong thing, and yet we continue to do it at the international level, and I think we just need to change that. So to close then, with these five paradigm shifts in mind, how optimistic are you that the development community internationally will take up your recommendations? I think it's a long-term thing. I think most people think in three to five-year time horizons because that's the nature of their organisation or their government. Um, and, and I think what we need to be doing at the moment, uh, especially in response to the climate crisis, but also in response to you know just continuing poverty and inequality, is rethinking our institutions, not for the next five years, but for the next 50 years at least. And you know, for, for following the Second World War, that's exactly what Keynes and other great economists did. They set up the World Bank and the IMF and um, the UN was even set up around that time. And they were appropriate uh, for for the time. And I think we need to be thinking in those kind of time horizons. So this is going to take a bit of time to embed. You know, compared to five years ago, every time I give this presentation, the response is pretty pretty good, including from governments. Um, I think people see that this is the the right way to move. I think people are concerned about how the hell they're going to sell it to the public and how it fits in with the the political stresses that governments find themselves in with a fast-changing world and in this region, the growing power of other countries constantly, uh, you know, at the top mind of, of governments and civil society and everyone. You know, it's hard to get that right. But broadly speaking, and also, of course, you know, if you just look at, you know, the current political leadership in many important countries around the world doesn't exactly look great for multilateralism and internationalism uh, to make an understatement. So so I, I, I don't say it will be quick, but my view is that especially as we realise that private money is, is just not arriving in the way that you know many people um, hoped a few years ago to pay for the SDGs, as we start thinking about the post-2030 agenda, this is someone very wise said this in a, in, 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 a, in a presentation I made a few months ago, as we start thinking about financing the post-2030 agenda, and so in other words, what comes after the SDGs, that's an opportunity to embed the idea that we need to have global contributions from all countries to sponsor sustainable development and to start building a a governance process that's congruent with that. We'll finish there. Thanks for being on the show, Jonathan. Thank you. That's it for episode 76. That was Jonathan Glennie speaking on Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. Join us next week for a discussion with two local experts in Papua New Guinea on the impacts of COVID-19 on the country. We'll see you then.